campus here at the well. So um, I'm really excited. Just real quick, um, I wanted to give you a little bit of an update. Uh, if you were here last week, or uh, maybe you missed last week, but you were here several weeks before, we did some uh, Christmas boxes for uh, the school. What we did is in our groups and another church called Providence actually helped as well, um, or even individuals put together a bunch of boxes and we collected them for uh, the kids here at Campbell. And so it was really, really cool. We got 134 gifts total, which is really, really awesome. Um, I know that today is a little bit lighter uh, with Christmas coming in, but um, we're only averaging about 110 or so people on a Sunday. And so to see that many gifts kind of come in is really, really cool. Um, I had a meeting with the principal this past Thursday, which was the kids' last day of school. And um, I saw them like running out to their cars and stuff. And I didn't want to go in while the kids were leaving because I'm like not old enough to have like a fifth grader, but I'm too old to like be walking around on campus. And so I didn't want to be that creepy, you know? And so I was just kind of sitting in my car watching, which makes it all the more creepy actually. And uh, as I was watching the kids, they would like run out with their little boxes and stuff. And it was just really cool. You could tell there was a lot of excitement. And so thank you. Um, I came into the school and the principal was just fully like trying to express his gratitude. Said thank you very, very much. Wanted me to tell you that personally. And so thank you for serving Campbell in that way. I know we do a lot of little things here, but that was one that just like really impacts the kids and their families. And so I appreciate that. All right. Um, so we are going to dive right in. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We will be in John chapter five. Uh, we're going to be there pretty much the whole day so you can camp out, rest there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Um, if you physically don't own a Bible, um, we want you to take and to keep that Bible. It's our gift to you. Um, we want you to have the word, and so please take and keep that. Um, you can also follow along on your smartphone. All right, uh, if you have a smartphone, you can pull that out. If you have the Version app, there's a little tab and underneath the live section of that tab, type in the well Austin and you can follow along uh, that way. Or uh, there should be a link up here on the screen in a second and um, you can just take that link, put it right into your browser and you'll be able to follow along. There's all the scripture, poll questions, places to take notes, stuff like that. Um, so we should be good to go there. All right. Today is going to be a fun sermon. Well, at least for me, it'll be fun, all right? Because I'm talking about two of my favorite things, Jesus and the Bible, okay? Um, and so it should be really encouraging. Um, I'm going to take two different kind of strings of thought, as Jesus does from this passage, and try to marry them together throughout the sermon. And so I need you to stick with me kind of the whole time because we're gonna be tying two concepts that Jesus is speaking of together um, and trying to make sense out of exactly what Jesus is saying. Last week, what we looked at was Jesus's claim to be God, all right? And so we see that Jesus last week didn't just think he was a man, didn't just think he was a good teacher, but he actually thought that he was God in the flesh amongst us, right? And so we looked at that. There's actually a chart that we showed last week. Um, is the PowerPoint working? It's not? Oh, there it is. Okay. Hey, look at that. <laughs> I didn't see the link up, so I thought, oh, it might not be working. Yeah. So we showed this chart last week, right? Um, and said so that Jesus is equal with God. And we looked at these several different things that Jesus claimed equality with, right? If you are equal with God, that also makes you God, right? Like there's no difference between the two. And so you can't be equal with God and then somehow not be God, right? So Jesus claimed to be God. He claims equality. And then he walked through these several different ways. Like he's equal with God in honor. He says, hey, me and God deserve the the same amount of honor, he said in verse 23, in self-existence. He said, nobody needs to keep me alive. I have life within myself. Only God has that. But Jesus says, no, because I am God and I'm equal with God, then I too am self-existent. And so we looked at all these claims last week, and that's kind of where we're going to be um, jumping in this week. Now, what we looked at is for anybody to say this, right, they're either insane or it's true, 
right? Like there's no kind of other option here. Either there's something kind of mentally wrong with the person who would say that they are equal with God. Like they may be a little bit crazy, an egomaniac maybe or something, or there's actually a true statement, right? Like, like I gave the example of if I came up here and said, hey friends, you know, I love you guys so much. Um, if you worship me, you're also worshiping God because me and God are the same, right? That sounds crazy. You all would not worship me. Why? One, you would fear for my life that I might get struck down by lightning, even just giving it as an example, okay? But also, like, you know that that's not true. So Jesus said, if you worship me, you are also worshiping God because we are one of the same. And so sometimes we can read a passage in scripture and not catch the umph of it, right? Like, this is a really heavy statement. And so the Pharisees were kind of like, how can you say these things? And Jesus just hammers over and over again, I am God, I am God, I am God. All right, and then what he wants to do is he wants to actually walk through the evidences of him being God. So the Pharisees essentially put him up on trial almost, and this is what Jesus is gonna be walking through today. It's kind of like he's on trial, okay? And so Jesus is gonna walk through, here's the ways that I am actually God. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead, jump in, John chapter five, and uh, we're gonna pick it up where we left off in verse 30. John five, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Okay, And so these verses are showing that Jesus does, in fact, have some witnesses to his claim of being God. So Jesus is going to kind of call forth some witnesses. In the Jewish law in Deuteronomy 18, um, it actually said that you needed at least one or two witnesses in order to make uh, your case in court valid. And we have similar laws in America, right? Like it's not as defined, but like if somebody came in here today and said, uh, Tori um, is guilty of killing my cat, right? And that could be true because I don't really like cats, okay? So you're like, oh, that may be true. But they're the only person that's saying it. Like, there doesn't have a whole lot of, of validity to their statement, right? But then if they say it and three other people say, yeah, he did, I saw him, this is how it went, and there are witnesses are saying the exact same thing, then there's validity, right? That was supposed to be kind of a joke. The cat thing, y'all were all just like, mm, yeah, okay, but no, but serious, right? Like, you need some witnesses. The more witnesses, the better. And so Deuteronomy 18 says, hey, we need at least one or two witnesses in order to make a point valid. Jesus makes a really profound point and then says, let me call up some witnesses. And so that's what Jesus is about to do. He's going to kind of call up the witnesses and show, look at who, who these people are and look at how they're saying, I am God. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 33. Here's his first witness. You sent to John, um, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So Jesus calls up his first witness, John the Baptist. And there's a ton to unpack here in these five verses because there's a heavy punch like Jesus often does. He puts a lot into his statements, right? But I want to look at a few here. Firstly, uh, John very clearly calls Jesus both God and Savior or Messiah, okay? John over and over and over again was a witness to the fact that he thought that Jesus was actually God and Savior of mankind, right? Matter of fact, in uh, what we read a few weeks ago in John chapter 1, he says that. Go back to John 1. Um, just flip back a couple of pages. In John chapter 1, verse 29, this is kind of the first thing that the gospel of John has John saying, okay? And so they're at the river, and John is baptizing people. The Pharisees are coming. And then the next day, verse 29, 
He saw Jesus uh, coming toward him and said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So stop. So he thought that he was actually the Messiah, right? He is the lamb of God. What he means by that is there was a separation between God and man. In the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices would cleanse the people of their guilt. But John is saying, this is actually the lamb of God. Like this is the fulfillment of all of those uh, sacrifices of what the goats and the sheep were supposed to be pointing us toward. This is him, Jesus in the flesh. So he calls him savior, right? Verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me, okay? This is also a very interesting phrase because John was actually six months older than Jesus was. And so how does this phrase make any sense, right? And I mean, we know John was actually a cousin of Jesus. And so Mary, I mean, uh, Elizabeth, John's mother, got pregnant long before Mary. Mary came. John was already almost fully grown in the womb. And she was just very lightly pregnant. She just got the message from the angel, right? Didn't even know whether or not she was pregnant yet. And the baby leaps within Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist does. And it says that it fills him with the Holy Spirit right then, which is really, really uh, miraculous. We don't have time to go into that today. But um, John was older than Jesus. So how is it that he can say, Jesus was before me? He ranks before me because he was before me, right? Like, you know, if I said Paul Carlson, one of our elders, like if Paul came up here and said, oh yeah, Tori was born before me, you'd be like, well, that's not true, right? Like you can look at Paul and know that very clearly, okay? I try to pick the oldest guy in the room, right? You're not the oldest guy, I'm sure of it. I love you. That's why you're one of our elders, all right? But um, if you looked at that and said, hey, you'd be like, no, that's not a true statement. Like you can look and very clearly tell. And so even in Jesus's time, like you'd be able to tell, no, John was actually before him. So why is he saying he's before because John knows that Jesus is actually God. He didn't just show up on the scene, right, uh, uh, went right after, six months after John was born. Jesus has always existed. And so this is what John is saying, that Jesus is both the Messiah and he's also God, right? He has always existed. He is before me because he's always been around, is what John is saying there, okay? And so Jesus is telling them in verse 35, you rejoiced at John, right, for a little while, like you were excited because the Jews actually really liked John, okay? Like the Jews thought of him as a prophet, and so they were actually very uh, intrigued with his message. And Jesus is saying, hey, do you remember these words that John the Baptist was speaking? Why don't you believe in the most important phrase that he said, that I am God, right? Jesus calls up John the Baptist as his witness and says, look, he said that I am God, and you believe that he's a prophet, so why aren't you believing in this word, John was a burning light, but what is Jesus saying? I am the son, right? John spoke the words of Christ. Christ is literally the word. And so John is just a forerunner to Jesus, who's the king. And so we see that Jesus very clearly thought that John was calling him God, right? And John was in fact calling him God. Now go back to uh, chapter five here. Something that's very, very interesting, I think in this phrase is verse 34. Jesus is saying two unbelievably important things here in verse 34. Firstly, he doesn't need a man to bear witness about him because he knows who he is, okay? So Jesus doesn't need to call up these witnesses because he's actually God, right? Like he doesn't need to prove himself to man. Man has to actually submit himself to Christ. And so Jesus isn't the one that's like handcuffed to their uh, affection or to their judgment. Jesus actually doesn't need to prove himself at all, but why does he call up John? And this is the second point. It's because he longs for their salvation, that verse says, right? 
Like, why is Jesus telling them these things? Because he wants them to be saved. He's even entering into this conversation with them so that they may be able to hear the gospel and begin to believe in it and receive it. Now, remember, Jesus is all-knowing, right? Like we looked at that last week. Jesus is self-sufficient. He has existed before time. Jesus knows what's going to happen here. Jesus knows that these very men that he's talking to will eventually mock him and beat him and spit in his face and ultimately lead him to be killed, right? Like Jesus knows very clearly these are the very men that are going to end up leading to my death. Yet he's sitting here pleading with them, trying to show them that he's actually God, not to escape death, but because he loves them and longs for them to know him. There's this weird misconception when we read through the Bible, like the Pharisees are like the evil dudes and like Jesus is the right one. They're always like butting heads, you know, and Jesus just doesn't really like them and they don't really like him. That last part right there is not true. Jesus does like them. He loves them, right? And we see over and over and over again, Jesus trying to persuade, trying to press, trying to do whatever it takes to help them know that he too is also God, that he too is the savior. And so Jesus is trying so hard to get the Pharisees to believe this. And this is the, the, the fruit of a lot of the conversation that we have going on there, right? Is that Jesus is God and he's trying to show the Pharisees that. Um, so Jesus is trying to speak logic to them. He's trying to help them to worship him so that they may be saved. Um, just this week I was in a coffee shop and, um, there's a barista in there that really doesn't like me a whole lot. Um, so it's kind of funny. Um, and I know why it's because he knows that I'm a Christian. Okay. And, uh, he's like scoffs at me whenever I read the Bible, like he'll be walking through and like take my plate away and literally like say things like toward me that are pretty aggressive. Sometimes I think they're kind of funny because they're kind of like lame. They're not that offensive, you know, um, but, uh, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't look at me when I order. Okay. Like he just straight up will not look at me. Um, this week I came in, no joke. He literally said to me, I'll give you this coffee for free if you don't stay here. And I was like, all right. So sometimes there's perks of being persecuted. All right. Like I got a free coffee out of it. I was like, can I get a mocha instead? Like I'll take that too, you know? Um, and it would be really, really easy. Okay. For me to be self-righteous toward him and to either act out in anger right, and kind of retaliate, because let's be real, that's what I'm feeling, okay, it's not like I'm like, yeah, turn the other cheek, you know, I'm like, what, you know, and I really quickly want to act out, it'd be really easy to do that, um, or it would be really easy for me to kind of turn away and just ignore him, and be like, whatever, he's going to perish anyway, <laughs> right, wouldn't it be easy to think that, okay, um, instead, I really long for this man to be worshiping here in the well one day with us, right? Like I deeply, deeply long to see him. Matter of fact, I hope that he's able to go back and listen to the sermon and kind of laugh at that moment and go, yeah, I remember that, ma'am. Sorry. <laughs> you know, I long to see this man be saved. Not because I want to hear his apology, because I know that in the gospel, there's true life and this dude isn't experiencing life. For some reason, he's convicted even by me just being there or doesn't like Christians. Somebody's probably done something really weird, uh, some bad family problems. I don't know, whatever it may be. Like, I want that man to be saved, you know? And does your heart long and break for the people who don't know Jesus in that way? Because Jesus does, even against his enemies, right? Like, it's easy to see Jesus at the woman at the well or, or the woman who was caught in adultery, and we see his compassion, and we see his mercy, and it's really easy to be like, yeah, Jesus really wants them to be saved. But you can see it very clearly in his conversations with the Pharisees. Like he's always urging them, right? Trying to convince them, using logic, using reason, doing whatever it takes that they would come to know him too. He says, I don't need to sit here and show you this. I am God, but I'm telling you this so that you can be saved. And so when you're arguing with someone about theology, you know, are you trying to be right? 
Or are you longing for them to know God? You know, when somebody mocks you, when somebody persecutes you or ridicules you, do you long for them to know the Lord or do you shy away from that? See, Jesus jumped into it longing for them to know him. And so that's a very important thing to hold on to, verse 34, as we move throughout, because Jesus says some really aggressive things. And if you think that, if you forget verse 34, it'll look like Jesus is just being mean to the Pharisees. He's not being mean to them. He's longing for them to know who he is and doing whatever it takes to try to convince them that he is actually actually God, and by worshiping him, they can be saved, okay? He wants their repentance. Let's keep reading, verse 36. <clears throat> but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So John was a great witness, okay? He's saying, I have something that's even better than John's witness, right? What does he say? For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The second thing that testifies about Jesus is his works, the works that the God, the Father, has sent him to do. You know how he turned water into wine in chapter 2, right? Or how he healed the invalid man that was uh, uh, invalid for 30 years. Or how he healed the, um, the, the son of the... Uh, of the official, right, the official son, like he healed him. These are powerful proofs that Jesus is in fact God. And throughout even this book, which is actually the book that records the least amount of miracles of Jesus, you'll see it over and over and over and over again, right? Jesus will raise someone from the dead. Jesus will heal a man that's blind. He does things that the Pharisees say, no one has ever done this. Like you look in the Old Testament, nobody ever healed anybody that was blind. And Jesus says, those works are proof that I am God because only God can heal the blind, right? And so even a greater testimony than John, I have the fact that my works bear fruit, bear witness about who I am. Keep reading, verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard and his form you have never seen and you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So number three, the father bears witness about Jesus, right? God the father. Um, we talked about this a bunch last week and so I don't wanna dive into it too much here today but the father is over and over again proving that Jesus is God, right? Even in a way that we can understand, like think about when Jesus got baptized. It said many people were there Okay, Jesus goes below the water and he comes up and open up the heavens and a dove descends and the father speaks and says what? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, right? It says many people heard that. And so Jesus isn't just saying, hey, I just, I know this. Like there were people that were testifying, you know, I did hear that voice. Maybe I was tripping. I don't really know what was going on. But if you ask 15 people and they all say, yeah, we heard a voice say that. Jesus is saying, this is testifying. God the Father is testifying that I am, in fact, the Son of God. I am God, okay? The Mount of Transfiguration, right? John, James, and Peter go up to the mountain. They see Moses and Elijah, and they see Christ burning with his actual glory, right? The, the incarnation of the flesh kind of sheds off for a moment, and they're able to see the Son for who he really is. And then Peter starts talking like he always does, gets himself in trouble, and what happens? God the Father says, this is my Son. Listen to him. Right? And so over and over again, even in this very book, we see God the Father bearing witness that Jesus is, in fact, God. Okay? Keep reading. Verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So the scriptures, holistically, as number four, bear witness about Jesus, okay? And I'm actually going to cheat ahead here in a minute because this is the crux verse of the passage. So I want to spend some time here. Uh, let's jump over to verse 46 and look at the last witness. 
For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. And so Moses also bears witness as number five. And so we have five different witnesses kind of bearing proof or showing that Jesus is in fact God. He's the savior, okay? And by the way, not just like any random witnesses, you know? Like if someone came in here and said, hey, Tori killed my cat, you know, and then like Joe and Sally and um, Jimmy, I'm trying to use names of nobody that's in here. I'm sure I just hit somebody, I'm sorry. But if random people kind of came up, you know, and said, oh yeah, I saw that, that would make it pretty valid, right? Do you see the men that are bearing witness about Jesus? Can you get a more strong witness testimony than these men, right? John the Baptist, okay? Jesus said he's the greatest man ever to have two earthly parents, right? Like John the Baptist, Jesus said, is the greatest man to be born, except for me, Jesus is saying, right? And so John the Baptist is probably the the, the greatest human witness you can have. The works that Jesus is doing You know, like think about when he uh, went on the seas and the disciples were scared and he rebuked the winds and the waves and the disciples looked and they said, who is this that even the winds and the waves listen to this man? That's a work of Jesus. If you and I went outside and we didn't like the rain, we're like, oh, I don't like it when it rains. Rain, I rebuke you. It would not listen to you, okay? Because you're not God, right? But the works, the very works of Jesus, God the Father, you cannot get a more powerful witness than that, obviously, right? The scriptures, the holy sacred scriptures, which show us who God is, and Moses, the most influential man that's ever existed in many different religions and cultures. The five witnesses that Jesus has are some pretty powerful witnesses. And Jesus is saying all of them are testifying that I am in fact God. That I am in fact God, right? And so the witnesses prove that Jesus is actually God. Jesus proved it. He's telling them this. He's longing for their salvation in this, okay? But let's shift for a moment, okay? Why don't the Pharisees believe that Jesus is actually indeed the Christ? Like, why don't the Pharisees believe that, okay? Or his witnesses, because they don't believe in his witnesses either, right? Jesus is telling them, and then he has five other people showing him, and he probably could have kept naming off more and more witnesses, right? So why don't they believe in that? Why don't they come to worship him? Why don't we fully believe in Jesus as being the Christ, right? I'm talking to both of us, those of us who have welcomed Jesus into our hearts, who actually believe in him, and those of you who are still seeking and trying to figure out who Jesus is. What is it that's stopping us from believing in him initially or more fully? Like, why haven't we fully accepted the fact that Jesus is God? Where are our hearts at in that? Why don't we long to come to him? Why don't we fully worship him? Jesus gives us a hint in this passage. Go back to verse 39. Verse 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. How ironic is this? Their desire to be righteous is actually blocking them from true righteousness because they're trusting in the wrong things to save them. Like they have a desire to be righteous. That's why they're diving in the scripture in the first place. It's not like the Pharisees were just kind of, oh, whatever, we don't really care. They long to know God, but in their longing, they were looking at the wrong things, right? And I know a lot of us, like we long to be good people, you know? We long to end up in heaven when we die, but if we're looking at the wrong things, we're gonna land at the wrong conclusion and it's actually going to block us from getting to know God. This should be a really scary phrase. Like if you think about it, You know, like if you really apply this into your life, because you can actually replace this with anything else that you may be using to block you with God. Like you come to church weekly thinking that in this you have eternal life, not realizing that church is meant to point you to the one who can give it 
to Jesus, right? And so it can really easily replace us with church. We think that we are better Christians. We think that we will harness a relationship with God. We think that these things actually give life and reality is nothing more than an arrow pointing to the one who can, right? Um, you give regularly, thinking that in your giving, you have eternal life, not recognizing that giving is supposed to point you to the ultimate giver, the man who gave his life, that you may have life in him, right? You're a good person. This is the one that often trips us up. You're a good person, thinking that in your good works, you would gain eternal life, not realizing that there was only one good person ever, Jesus, and in his work is the only way we can be brought back to the Father, right? We can replace this phrase with so many different examples, right? This book, the Bible that we're holding, right, this book right here, doesn't mean anything unless it's actually pointing us to Jesus, okay? I know it's a strong phrase, but this is just a book. It means absolutely nothing unless it's drawing us toward a relationship with God. And listen, I love this thing, okay? Like, I'm the weird dude who, like, kisses his Bible. I literally do that, all right? I know you just lost a little bit of respect for me. That's okay, though, okay? But I, I, I deeply love the scriptures, okay? But if it's just for scripture's sake, this is nothing. This is nothing unless it's drawing you to the actual person who can say. That's what Jesus literally said. You search the scriptures, they don't have life. They're pointing to me. This is simply a book, okay? The whole thing from back to front is meant to drive you into a relationship with Jesus. It's meant to direct your affections toward knowing him. The Pharisees and many of us are missing that point, right? Many of us are missing that point, that this whole thing is meant to direct us toward Jesus, or many other pursuits that we have are nothing more than agents to try to direct us toward a relationship with God, right? Like, it's not about religion. It's about finding a relationship with the God of the universe, and we say that a lot. Like, that's a new phrase that's kind of become popular in the last 20, 30 years, but it's a true one, right? Like, religious practices will not draw you toward a relationship with God. A relationship, you actually seeking the one who can give the relationship is what will actually save you, is what will draw you into affections with him. And so theology for theology's sake doesn't mean anything. And that used to be me, right? Like, I used to love, love, love theology. When I first got saved, I was loving it, right? Like, I was the dude who was weird with the systematic theology, the book's like this big, you know? You really look like a weirdo in a coffee shop with that book, you know? You open it up, it's like 7,000 pages about God's, you know, whatever, pre-existence, and you're like, oh, this is so great, right? If you are loving learning about God, but not actually knowing God, then that's nothing, you know, I could argue doctrines, I can argue the atonement, I can use cute little eschatological words that will make me sound smarter than I really am. But in reality, if I'm just doing those things and not finding a deeper affection for Jesus, it means nothing. Think of it like this. If I read a book about Natalie, you know, I read everything about her, right? I could see what she liked. I see like how she acted like, ooh, when I get snarky with her, this is how she responds. And I read that in a book, you know, like I'm, I'm reading about different things that she likes, the restaurants she likes. I'm reading her love languages. And if I just read and read and read, but never draw closer to my wife, then what meaning is all that reading? It's worthless, isn't it? Like think about it in a human relationship. It doesn't mean anything. And so what Jesus is saying is, if in our pursuits, whatever they may be, if they're just pursuits for pursuit's sake, they don't mean a whole lot. But when you can shift those and allow them to point you into an affection with Christ, that's when it becomes powerful. Like if I'm reading a book about my wife and it says, do these things and, and your relationship will be better, and then I actually go do those things, then that was a great tool to help me do these things, right? 
So ultimately, everything is supposed to be a direction, an arrow to point you into the gospel, to point you into an actual relationship with Christ. A friend of mine in here who's in here today, we were talking a while ago, and he used to love, love, love Calvinism. He loved that concept, right? I'm not making one claim on one way or the other. That's not this sermon. That's for later, all right? But he said that he realized that he used to uh, try to convert Christians to Calvinism rather than to a deeper Christianity, So he would literally spend all of his time trying to convert them to this theological idea rather than into an actual relationship with the God of the universe. And many of us can get stuck in that boat if we're not careful. It's easy to mistakenly or unfortunately sometimes even purposely do certain rituals or things that would draw us into it for ritual's sake rather than for relationship's sake, right? Have you ever wondered why the Bible seems uh, burdensome sometimes? Like maybe some of you reading seems burdensome, right? Like you know you should read the Bible, but then you think about actually sitting down and reading it and it feels like this is just burdensome or it seems super, super boring. You see weird dudes like me like kissing their Bible and you're like, what in the world? Like how come I don't feel that, right? Like what, what's going on? Maybe you're missing the point, okay? Maybe you're missing the point. Maybe you're going through scriptures just because that's what you're supposed to do not realizing that the scriptures are actually supposed to point you to the Savior in Jesus, right? Maybe a shift in that heart set and in that mindset would help you really fall in love with this book or with church or fellowship or the many things that Christ has laid out to draw us into a relationship with him. He hasn't laid these out for our burden, but for our joy. But when we worship those things as Savior or think that those things give us life, they do become burdensome. They do become weighty. They do become heavy, right? And so many of us are just reading for religious sake. Um, Hillel was a famous Jewish rabbi, okay? One in whom uh, the Jews nearly worshiped today, okay? This guy was like the, one of the greatest rabbis ever. He uh, existed shortly after Jesus um, died, uh, like 100 AD or so. And listen to this statement he made. Y'all may have even heard of Hillel. There might be Hillel centers. I know there's one at Texas, Right, there's an actual Hillel Center named after um, this rabbi. He said, the more study of the law, the more life. You hear that? The more study of the law, the more life. And that if a man gains for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. So Hillel was just stressing the point that Jesus just made. He said, hey, if you read the scriptures enough, you will gain eternal life by doing that. And Jesus is saying, you're missing the point, man. You're missing the point, right? So the Jews set their minds to know this book inside and out. Look, they can run theological circles around me, right? Like even today, go on like some forums where where, where people are uh, arguing theology and stuff. They can run theological circles around, but there's no relationship present. They study and study and study thinking that this is what will give life. And we do that. We try to be a good enough person, try to be a good enough person, try to be a good enough person, thinking that in that, that will give us life. And it doesn't. It doesn't. It's supposed to point us to the one who can. This whole thing is meant to you gaining and growing in your relationship with Jesus. Every single predictive prophecy, okay, every single type in the Old Testament, every single uh, 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 event, right, that was revealing, every single anticipatory statement was meant to point to the Messiah. And that's true from the Old Testament up to Christ and from the New Testament back to Christ. Everything is meant to draw our affections toward Jesus. Like, how crazy is that? Like, think about even our sermon series, actually. Like, think about as we started in the book of John, just the book of John, right? John 1 says that Jesus is the word, 
right? The Old Testament talked about the word, the word, the word of God, the word of God. The longest chapter in scripture is all about the word of God, right? And Jesus, or, or, or John, the author is saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. You jump ahead, John chapter one. It says that Jesus said, I am the ladder to heaven. You'll see the angels of God ascending and descending on me. And you go, what does that mean? And then you go back to Genesis 28. And there's this random story in Genesis. Jacob falls asleep and he has a dream. And the angels of God are climbing up the ladder and climbing down the ladder. And then he wakes up and he says, I think I've seen God. This must be where God lives. Jesus comes in and says, I was the ladder. I'm the way that you ascend to heaven and get back down to earth. That was nothing more than a picture of me. When Jacob saw that, it should have pointed him toward Christ, which it did. If you look at that text very carefully, he says, I have seen God, I recognize. And he anticipates from that moment on, God coming to save him, right? And so Jesus says, this was nothing more than a predicted text. You jump to John chapter two, right? Jesus turning water into wine. The celebratory event, the fact that he turned them inside of the, the, the purification jars. You jump ahead a little bit more in John 2. He says, I am the temple. Destroy this body, I will rebuild it in three days. I am the temple. That meant that the whole Old Testament temple was nothing more than a type of Christ. When you look at the Old Testament temple, you should start seeing things and go, holy snap, that's supposed to point me to Jesus, right? Like the, the blood of, uh, of, of, of goats and sheep are not sufficient enough to pay for man's sins. So what are these, uh, 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 the sheep? What are the goats? Nothing more than something that's supposed to point you to the need for the ultimate lamb of God. John says that Jesus was actually that, you know? You go to John chapter three. He's talking to Nicodemus and he says, Hey, you remember when the Israelites held up this snake and whoever looked at it was saved? Now, this is like a super random story, okay? Like snakes came out of the ground and they bit the Israelite people because they were rebellious. Praise the Lord that doesn't happen, at least not that much anymore, okay? Could you imagine if snakes just started coming out and biting people, you know? So that was happening. A bunch of people were getting sick. They were dying. And God said, put a snake on a staff and hold it up. And anyone who looks at it will be healed. Jesus said, I am that. That was nothing more than a picture of what would actually come because I will be hung up on a rod and everyone who looks to me will be healed. They will be saved. This random story in the Old Testament is a picture of Christ. And we can keep going through our sermons, right? All throughout John, Jesus is saying, all these events were nothing more than to point us toward Jesus. And so over and over and over again, this book is supposed to point us into our need for a relationship with God, the beauty of who Christ is. Um, this, is this is great. So I love this. So what does this mean? That Jesus longs to point us to himself, right? Jesus longs to point us into a relationship with him. Church. What is church? You know, like, like, what, like, why do we come? This doesn't mean a whole lot unless it's pointing us to Christ. It's just religion. It's just ritual. We just do it just to be doing it, you know. Jesus established the church, he said very clearly, so that the word can be preached, so that songs could be sung, so that through fellowship and through the practice of sacraments, we can see Christ. That's why when you take communion, it's supposed to point you to what? Christ. When you do baptism, it's supposed to point you to what? Christ. That's why the sermon should be about who? Christ. That's why the song should be Christ-centered. It's supposed to point us into the means for a relationship with God. Marriage. What did Paul say marriage was? Like this great institution has been around ever from the start. Paul said in Ephesians 5, oh, marriage is about Christ and the church right? This is literally what marriage is supposed to point us to. So everybody who's married, your marriage should do nothing more than reflect you into a relationship with God. It should be a pointer toward your relationship with God. And then in that, if you see that and live that out, your marriage will have life. But when you try to make marriage your savior, it crushes you because it's not 
a savior. It's nothing more than a type or a picture of what's to come. Parenting, work, we looked at work a few weeks ago, right? God, the creation, when we create things, is meant to do nothing more than point us to the fact that Jesus is the creator. And so over and over and over again, we can go through a hundred examples, but Jesus is trying in every which way to show us that he's actually God, that he longs for a relationship with us. Amen? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So how awesome is this, that our Savior would put so many things in our path to try to push us to know him. Like, think about the sweetness of that Savior. He's not leaving himself blind to us, right? Everything that we're doing, everything that's around us, all the relationships, all the common grace, these things are meant to draw us into a relationship with God. Christmas, even this season, these candles, everything that is going on. Jesus is trying to set up so many ways to help us know him. You know, let's finish this text. Uh, Verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him, which is ironic. There were over 600 different uh, false Christ after Christ showed up on the scene. Tons of people started saying, oh, hey, actually, I'm the Christ. And many people would follow him. She's saying, you're going to follow them, but you're not going to believe me. They're only seeking their own glory. I'm seeking to lay down my life, yet you don't follow me, right? Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Circle that, highlight that, and apply that into your own heart because that's part of our problem as to why we don't believe. We long for the glory of man rather than the glory of God. 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Ouch. Ouch. 46. For if you believed in Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Ultimately, the Pharisees and us too don't come to Jesus because of our own pride. Right? We'd rather have glory from man or, or we just straight up miss the point. You know, Verse 45 is so dang powerful. That's such a hard verse. This book, if it doesn't point you to Jesus, it'll actually only crush you. It'll only lead to conviction. Right? You ever heard the story of Mark Twain? Um, the, the, the author, right, Mark Twain. So um, he used to have this reoccurring dream where he would be uh, laying down in his bed and he would wake up in the dream um, and he would wake up and there'd be a Bible on top of his chest and it would grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And he would try to push the Bible off of him and he couldn't push the Bible off of him. And he was like trying to get from under the Bible, but he couldn't. And then he would wake up and he says, the reason he became an atheist, right? He said, because this book is too burdensome to follow. Isn't that exactly what Jesus is saying? Moses was accusing him. The law was accusing him. Because when you look at this and there's no savior in front of you, then this is a really burdensome thing. You could just read three of the laws and realize, oh shoot, I fall short, (laughs) right? So this is actually burdensome until you realize that that is supposed to point you to the need of a savior. And Jesus is that guy who can save you. You know, and so even this book, even when you read it, it's going to either just convict you or it'll make you hardened and prideful like a Pharisee. You'll think that you have a handle on it. You'll think that somehow you're fulfilling all the law. I don't know how you read this and think you're fulfilling the law, right? But they did. And I know some of us do too, right? We read it and we think, oh, I'm a good enough person now, right? We do enough things and then boom, we're good to go. Not realizing that, no, this is supposed to point us to the one who is perfect. This is supposed to point us to a savior. So this thing will either crush you Okay, or it will liberate you, 
right? And if you're looking at the right person, it will give you liberty. But if you're trying to do it yourself, if you're just reading this just to read it, it's going to end up crushing you. And you're going to end up not believing because you'll seek glory from the wrong place, Jesus is saying, right? There's so many things I would love to walk through this text, but um, we don't have time. We'd be here till three, which I'm good with. Y'all good with? Yeah, all right. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Two people were like, please, no. <laughs> um, so what should we do then? What should we do? All right, draw an application out of this. What, what should we do? Should we abandon the scriptures? No, <laughs> heck no. Right, that's the last thing that we should do. Quite the opposite, actually. Uh, we should sprint to this book because of who this book points to. Okay, this should be super contagious in our life because of who it's pointing us to, right? We should run toward everything that points us to Jesus, right? So should we be in church? Yes, because if it's done right, then it's supposed to point you into an affection for God. It's supposed to point you toward knowing Jesus, right? Um, this is why I want to do the Bible in a year as a church, actually, because I would love it if all of the church, so think about this with me, if all the church began to try, right? Like if you try to do it and check off the boxes and you fall behind, then you'll feel guilty if you're just doing it to check off the boxes and it will be a crushing burden on you, okay? So notice that not to do it for religion's sake, but do it to try to point us to Christ. Imagine if we all started reading. And then Monday, I met with Bill, and we talked about what God was showing, and Bill showed God these cool things from Genesis 1, but, but or I'm sorry, God showed Bill these cool things from Genesis 1. You can't show God anything. He knows everything, all right? God showed me these cool things from Genesis 2. We can encourage one another in that. And then on Tuesday, I meet with Bob, right? And we talk a little bit, you know, and, and, and God showed Bob something really cool from Genesis 3. I can tell him what I saw from Genesis 2 and what Bill saw from Genesis 1. And so we can actually begin to speak into each other. Now, Bill and Bob may never meet up, but Bob is getting what Bill's getting because of our meeting together, right? And then I go to a community group that night, and you got something from Genesis 1 that was different than Bill's, and somebody else has a hard question, and, somebody, and if we all start doing that, hopefully what will happen is the word will permeate throughout our people, and if it's done for the right sake to look for Christ, and that will draw us into knowing the Savior that much more, right? And so that's actually why I want to do that. That's why I would really encourage you, pick up a Bible plan, hop on the YouVersion app, sign up to do it, and try to do it. And then talk about it with one another, right? Let's try to point each other to Jesus. Let's try to help each other know who Jesus is. That's also why we want to do the How to Read the Bible class. We want to set up the class because if it is burdensome to you, if you don't know how to find Jesus, if it is hard to read, if, it, if you, know, you don't know how to, how to walk through Scripture, well, we want to help you learn to do that. We want to help you walk through what does it mean to actually dissect this text and see Jesus as a result of it. And so we can go on and on about there. But application, read your Bibles, all right? Fall in love with this thing, not for religious sake, not to do it just because that's what you're supposed to do as a Christian, but because of who this points to. This points to your Savior, the man who loves you, the man who laid down his life that you may know him, our sweet and beautiful Savior, right? This is a beautiful, beautiful text to point us to that. Um, yeah, dive in his word. And by doing so, you'll dive deep into him. And in that, you'll dive deep into life. I want life for us. So let's dive deep into it. Let's pray. Um, God, I thank you. I thank you for giving us life, God. I thank you for not leaving us to guess to try to figure out a way that we can possibly get to you, Jesus. You made it so abundantly clear, God. You made it so clear. Jesus, you laying down your life that we may have a relationship with you. 
And that by believing in you, we can actually enter into that relationship and begin to experience life. God, that's what I long for us to have. Lord, would the scriptures point us toward that, not toward ourselves, not toward uh, our, our own pride, not toward a burden, but toward you, God. When we uh, give of our finances, would that not be a burden to us? Would we realize that you, the greatest giver of all, have given up everything, and may we see you through that, God? When we fellowship with one another, when we uh, encourage one another, when we hold each other accountable, when we go to church, and all the different things that you've aligned to help draw us towards you, let those not be burdensome, God. Let them be pointers. Let them be arrows that point us towards you, Jesus. Even this Christmas, God. I pray that as people go home and hang out with their families, which I know can be stressful for some people. Um, Maybe they don't have a family. Maybe they feel uh, just very empty and almost kind of lonely. God, would you not allow Christmas to be consumeristic and materialistic the way that it has turned into in America? Would you let it be pointing us toward you, Jesus, remembering you, the Christ man who incarnated himself here on this earth, that we would know you? Would we remember that, God? Would we uh, 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 use that even to draw us towards you, God? Draw us toward you, Jesus. That's what we long for. God, may you be glorified in our hearts and our lives. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.